Today is October 25th, 2012. It is a Thursday, and this is episode 1006 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, today I have a gentleman named Aaron Bettine uh, hanging on for an interview here, and we're going to be talking about farmland as an investment with a critical analysis about everything that's gone on with productive land and investing over the past couple years. Before I bring Aaron on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Sawtooth Tactical. Everything you need to live that tactical lifestyle. Everything from Magpul Magazines to uh, SOE Tactical Gear, the Titanium Badass Spork, and everything you can think of in between. Check them out today. SawtoothTactical.com. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated, nestled in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho. Hence the name, Sawtooth Tactical. Check them out today. Sawtac. Com. Next up today, ready-made resources. There's really not much more than we can ask for from a company than for their name to tell us everything they do and then have them do it and do it right all the time. That's what ready-made resources does for you. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready-to-order, ready-to-go, point-click, buy into the shopping cart, make a payment, and lightning-fast shipping service and great pricing to your front door. And when I say everything for your prepping, I mean it. Let's look at some of the options. 12-volt appliances for your solar, wind, and backup power uh, projects. Check. Got it all. Long-term food storage options. Got it. Stuff to make your own long-term food storage with canning supplies, dehydrators, etc., etc., etc. Check. Got it. Tactical equipment, firearms, uh, stuff like that. As long as you can have it shipped to an FFL or in their state and can go there and pick it up, check. You can even get your firearms there. You name it, ReadyMade's got it. ReadyMadeResources.com. Best way to find ReadyMade Resources and all our sponsors, of course, go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on their banners in the right-hand margin, and that way you'll know you're dealing with an actual sponsor of the Survival Podcast. And remember... There's a long waiting list to be a sponsor. Not everybody gets to be a sponsor. These sponsors are, check, are my personal endorsements of hand-selected companies that I have approved first and then sent to our listener ad council made up of the moderators on our forum for secondary approval. And without passing both levels, they don't get in no matter how much money they offer. Sponsorship at the Survival Podcast is seen as being a service to you, the listener, not the main way I monetize my site. Because the way that I make money here, cut and dry, the real way, is through Members Support Brigade. And that brings me to uh, a reminder for you guys. Today and tomorrow are the last days of a Members Support Brigade sale. You can use the discount code October12, the word October, all lowercase, with 1-2. So October 1-2. All one word, no spaces, as your discount code, and you can get your first year of MSB for 40 bucks. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders, I give you guys a discount that's available for use on any membership term and applies to renewals, and it's better than this. So still, if you are in that category of first responder, military, law enforcement, email me before you join. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did of your prior service, and I will issue you your special discount code to thank you for your service to our nation and the world abroad. With that, I do have the housekeeping wrapped up, and I do want to remind you guys, though, that the Member Support Brigade is not just the way we pay our bills, even though it is. Um, it is also a great deal, a great value. I just added in the last 90 days uh, eight new companies and got you guys an upgrade from one that was already there. I want to give you those, and then we'll go ahead and introduce our guest and get into the main topic of today's show. But here's what I've added to the discount section. This is in your benefits area. I know some of you guys join and never use the benefits, man. Use the benefits. Terror Seeds now offers 10% off all purchases. 180 TAC. Uh, 10% off their 180 stove. Harvest Eating, 15% off all their store items. I just saved 15 bucks myself. I ordered about $100 worth of seasoning and stuff for my preps uh, from Chef Keith Snow. Old Grouch Military, Perch, uh, Military Surplus, 
10% off all purchases. I just ordered fuel cans and got 10% off. How about that? Doom and Bloom Survival Medical Supplies, 10% off all items. The most incredible collection of uh, medical preparedness supplies, top-notch stuff, hand-selected by a doctor and a nurse that practiced uh, for over 20 years each. So 40 years of combined experience, experts in the preparedness industry, hand-selecting these kits, 10% off that benefit if you're really going to stop up, stock up on metal, uh, medical supplies, might pay for your entire membership. JM Bullion, uh, our new silver and gold supplier, any order over $300 will have some sort of a discount attached to it. Backwoods Home Magazine, we've had them before. They were giving away a book. Now they give you 20% off a new subscription. If you're not a subscriber to Backwoods Home, it's probably one of the best preparedness publications out there. Check them out. Nodak Arms, 5% off all ammo that they sell, and they'll reload your brass for you. Uh, they have that service, which already saves you a ton of money. You ship them your brass, you tell them the load you want, they send it back loaded. Uh, and you pay way less than buying ammo that way. And that way everybody can participate in reloading. Yeah, we well, get another 10% off if you're a member. Next Level Training, uh, manufacturers of the CERT training handgun, an awesome training tool, 20% off. If you're going to buy one of those, that pays for your membership. That's what I've added in 90 days. I, I don't really hard sell the MSB a lot. Um, I just, now that there's a sale running, I wanted to give you, that's the addition, that's not everything. There's $150 worth of free ebooks. There's about 30 other vendors offering discounts and special programs just for you, and I'm working on bringing a couple more in right now. Just want to let you know, remember, October 12, October 1-2, that is your discount code to get your first year for 40 bucks. Military, law enforcement, etc. Don't use it. Email me with service discount on the subject line. Military guys, uh, you guys are good at following procedure, supposedly. Don't join and then email me and ask you how to get the discount. Once you've done that, I, I can't do it till next year. All right, with that wrapped up, let's go ahead and introduce our special guest, Aaron Bettine, he is currently a working student, working full-time, and going to school full-time, studying economics at Boise State University, and he is also the author of a blog called laymanonics.com, laymanonics as in laymaneconomics.com, great blog, I really recommend you subscribe to it, check it out, there will be a link in today's show notes, and with that, hey Aaron, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, thanks Jack, it's uh, great to be here with you. Hey, uh, you know, kind of getting started out, could you just give people a little bit about your background and uh, kind of, you know, where you're coming from on this topic today of uh, farmland? Yeah, you bet. Um, so uh, right now I am in my final semester at Boise State University. Uh, I am studying economics. That's my uh, my major and that's my passion. And... Um, my focus during my undergraduate work has been in specifically resource economics. So what I've done is I've studied um, a lot about pollution markets and things like that, you know, natural resource economics, environmental economics. And recently, one of my interests has been in uh, farmland. Now, I, I'm in Idaho. I'm in Boise, uh, which, is, which is a fairly uh, urban center, but we're surrounded by farmland. Uh, I live sort of in the outskirts of town. I look out my back window and I'm looking over a uh, wheat field. Um, not right now because it's harvested, but uh, they, they grow wheat and corn and things like that out here. And Anyway, uh, last spring uh, for one of my classes, a partner and I had to come up with a sort of a question and a, and a, a hypothesis, a hypothetical answer for that question. And uh, we, we decided to look at the value of farmland, and uh, our hypothesis was that um, crop prices would uh, be the major driver on the value of farmland, and uh, we had some unexpected results. And so we'll kind of go into that in a little while, but it was really interesting. And so I've continued to investigate this and, um, you know, do some, do some, I guess, analysis on this and, and kind of uh, a lot of reading, actually. And uh, there's, uh, you know, the, the market for farmland in America is pretty interesting. And I think that there's a lot of aspects to it that, that many people haven't thought of um, and uh, a lot of sort of factors that can affect the value of farmland uh, going forward. And the reason I think that this is a big deal for preppers and, and people who are interested in it is, you know, I know you've talked a lot about getting a, getting a homestead, um, you know, getting some rural land, that's, that's been a topic that's been covered, uh, 
you know, now and again and, and, you know, pretty frequently on your podcast. And I thought that this might be of interest to people just because it will, uh, it will allow them to maybe do their own analysis at home if they're interested in this or, um, you know, just kind of maybe look look ahead and see what's coming, even if they're not interested in in, uh, in uh, getting some farmland or investing in farmland, uh, just to kind of see some things that are coming and, and things that might happen in that market. Awesome, awesome. So kind of kicking the whole thing off, I mean, I've been talking about this. I've seen big money going into farmland. Uh, it was really hot news about a year ago with the mainstream kind of stepped on it, and that means that it started to, you know, probably two years before those fools even started to discuss it. So, you know, just kind of leading off here, what is the big deal with farmland? So, you know, the big deal is is that um, it's a it's a commodity asset that can also produce revenue, and so you know, you've you've recently talked about getting buying stocks, you know. Uh, some real, you know, the the kinds of stocks that are sort of, uh, I, I don't even know what you, what what is the term for them? The uh, I want to call them blue collar, but they're uh, like the blue you know, chip just, dividend. Just your, yeah, there you go. Like your blue chip dividend stocks. That's that's what I, I was looking for. And uh, you know that these stocks are uh, a great way to go because they produce. They also produce that dividend and that revenue for you. Well, farmland is the commodity that produces a dividend revenue for you. You know, you, you can't employ gold. You can't employ silver. Um, you can't really rent those out and expect, you know, some kind of a dividend on those. Uh, when you buy gold, silver, oil, or even, uh, you know, the, the products that are produced on farmland, you get what you get and you hope to profit from the sale of those. It's like a typical stock where you buy, you want to buy low and sell high. Well, Farmland is different. And so the big deal right now is that farmland is a commodity. You, you actually have a physical asset there, but it produces a dividend because it's productive. So that's what the big deal is. And I, and I think that that's important to, to note. Do you think there's maybe two sides of that, though? Because, yes, farmland is a commodity that produces a dividend, but only if it's used. So there's people well, out there right absolutely. now that I think that are investing in farmland, but they're only playing one half of the play, the equity play. They're buying it and just sitting on it. It's, it's farmland that's not being farmed. Or maybe they're getting their dividend by leasing it to an actual farmer. Yeah, actually, a lot of the, a lot of the big investors right now are, are currently leasing it. And um, so... <laughs> So the reason is, and for those who are not, uh, you know, economically or financially, uh, you know, they don't, a lot of people aren't going to have much interest in that. But um, the main reason is that because interest rates are so low, uh, the the return on investment is actually pretty high. So right now the, the net return to investment is, is really good. Um, they can they can afford to purchase big big parcels of farmland, and whether they work the land or not, these investors can rent it out at reasonable prices to people who will farm the land, and then those people will provide a return on investment year over year, and they're also hoping again that that investment increases in value. So there there actually is a play, and, and most um, institutional investors are renting that farmland out. So there's there's actually uh, a bit of a market for um, sort of realtors to find uh, farmers to farm the land. But right. I know around here, at least, like in, in Idaho, um, there's, uh, you know, if there's, if there's good farmland available, it, it gets farmed right now. Okay. So Yeah, I, I agree crop, with that completely. And I think good. that probably the investors looking at it this way, um, as long as I can lease the land sufficient to cover the payments, I'm acquiring the equity with somebody else's money. Bingo. Yeah, it, you know, it's like buying a rental house. Um, you know, something that uh, investors have done for a long time. You know, they buy the rental house and they have somebody else kind of pay off the payment and then they sell it at the end and hope that the, the asset value or the asset has increased in value. Um, and if it hasn't, you hope that maybe you at least break even so that somebody else has made all these payments and you still come out ahead. Well, in additional to that, just like with a house, if I buy farmland today, if I hold it for 10 years, if I pay the payments on the land with somebody else's money, 
there's two things that can happen. One, the land can appreciate in value, but two, I can also probably lease the land for more 10 years from now than when I started out, where I've fixed my investment costs. Right, exactly. So that's that's important. And that's why a lot of, um, you know, you hear of like George Soros investing in farmland and, and a few other big money investors, and, and they've... Uh, you know, they've, they've started to make significant purchases, although, um, you know, we think of their purchases as just, you know, wow, they're investing huge amounts of money in this uh, commodity, um, this asset, when, when really to them it's, it's just a, another way to defer, diversify. Yeah, so we shouldn't so, think that that's all they're investing in. You know, that's a really good point because, like, if you hear somebody invested, like, a million dollars in something, that sounds like a lot of money, but if George Soros – Invests, you know, ten million dollars, or Jim Rogers invests twenty-five million dollars in farmland. That's like saying you or I bought, you know, ten thousand dollars worth of Ford stock. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. It, well, I'm a student, so ten thousand dollars worth of Ford stock would be a lot. But, but yeah, yeah, point taken. Yeah. So, what's 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 so important with this? Like, what factors are affecting the value of farmland in America? And what kind of pressure are these factors creating for farmland? So, you know, the, the main factors um, that are affecting the value of farmland is that, um, you know, first, kind of like what we talked about, interest rates have remained low. And so that's allowed borrowers to get relatively cheap money to purchase this productive land. Um, you know, the second, the second main thing um, that I see that's been affecting it is the rise, the, the, the increase in the global population. Um, you now have China who has a burgeoning middle class, and that middle class is demanding, you know, more luxury goods, and along with that, they're demanding more calories. Um, there's a good chance they're going to start getting fat like we are in America. We demand, we, we demand a lot of calories in America. Um, you know, and, and even in places like India and, and, and uh, you know, Africa, just play anywhere where the, the population is on the rise uh, and the growth rate is very high, you're going to see a, a demand for calories. And uh, we talk about really um, not necessarily the yields in, in actual crops per acre, but when, when uh, we as economists uh, talk about the yield. A lot of times we like to talk about the calories per acre and the demand for calories because, um, you know, different people have different diets, but the important thing there is, is calories per acre. So you're going to have a, a, an increase in demand for calories, um, and, and we'll talk a little bit about population growth rates and how that affects it. Um, and then, you know, kind of like we talked about, it's also a commodity uh, that produces the revenue, and it's, a, it's an interesting investment vehicle. Um, especially um, when you factor in things like inflation. And, and that's one of the big things that, uh, that we'll talk about as well is how inflation has infected it or uh, infected, affected the uh, value of farmland and why maybe that's an important factor. So th those are the main things is, is really, um, you know, low interest rates, um, uh, growing global population, the, the increasing demand for calories, and then, um, you know, its, its status as a commodity and, a, you know, the, the revenue-producing hard asset. So okay. th those are the main things. So with that in mind, like, what can we really expect in your view? Because you've done a lot of research on this in the short term and the long term, or maybe even the short term versus the long term here. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So, um, so here's the thing. Uh, in the short term, as with any commodity, there's, there's so many things that can come up that are unexpected that can affect the value of farmland. But the two main drivers of short-term farmland values, and this is, you know, when we talk about the short term, the, the important thing for people to, to think about here, I guess, is that this is going to this is going to affect the sticker price that you pay. If you are investing in farmland, or if you're you know investing for the long run, um, obviously these things are going to um, not really going to affect it too much. But the but the two main things are uh, crop prices and all of the factors that affect crop prices, and also interest rates. So the reason for that is that. 
in uh, in in the long run, and uh, there there are other factors as well. Um, so, and it's 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 difficult to explain how these factors exist in the long run, but they affect the short run value. And, and I'll try and get to this, but. Investment decisions are largely made on net present value. Whether you're conscious of it or not, you think to yourself and investors think to themselves when they make an investment, especially institutional investors, they have a bunch of uh, analyst nerds like me pushing buttons and figuring these things out, but they look for the net present value of the asset or the capitalized value of the asset. They want to know, given, you know, a certain set of expectations, what can we what can we expect this value to be to us, and and what is its value today? What is the net present value? So we're going to factor in all of the um, costs of uh, of this asset, the the costs associated with it. So where you have a revenue producing asset, you know you're actually going to factor in um, your input costs to farming, you know labor, uh, fuel, fertilizer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and on and on. And you're also going to attempt to calculate the revenue that you receive from those operations, so the sale of the crops. And you're going to calculate that stream of benefits out into the future. And, um, you know, typically, you know, it has its strongest effect in, in the near future and, and out sort of into infinity. Um, I don't think anybody really cares too much, you know, how much revenue it's going to bring in in a million years. But um, you discount those, and when you choose a discount rate, that's kind of what's important, um, and that's how interest rates affect these values as well. So when you choose this discount rate, it's based on typically the yield for a bond, and a lot of them use a lot of people use the ten-year yield, and um, some people like to choose a rate that's higher than that. Even uh, just just for the purpose of of making your um, stream of benefits sort of lose value quicker, so that just is more or less a signal that you're going to be investing for a shorter term, or you only care about the shorter term benefits. And so what you do is you you basically calculate your um, your gross revenue, subtract out your gross costs, um, so you get your net your uh, your net revenue. And then you discount that out into the future. That gives you a net present value. So in the short term, if interest rates change, we don't know what interest rates are going to be tomorrow. We don't know what they're going to be uh, ten years from now. So that's why this is a, a uh, what if that's why this affects the value of farmland in the short run, because we look at interest rates. What are they today? If you're going to invest or if you're going to borrow money for farmland, you're going to borrow that money today. And so you want to know what interest rates are going to, to be doing. So if interest rates are low, you borrow the money, and you hope that, again, that all those input costs are low as well, but that your crop prices are high, and then that would be a, a, a big benefit. So in the short run, crop prices, which uh, even in, adjusted for inflation, have been increasing over the last few years, um, and, and I'll have actually a graphic of that on my blog, um, which is at laymanomics.com, and that's layman is in layman's terms, L-A-Y-M-A-N-O-M-I-C-S. Um, I'll have a uh, I'll have a chart on the uh, historic value of crop prices adjusted for inflation from 1987 to 2007. Prices have gone up, and so that's very good. And uh, as long as interest rates remain low, that's a, that's a big boost for farmland because it increases the demand for farmland. More revenue can be brought in. So in the short, short term, um, that boosts the, the value and the price of an acre of farmland. So that's the big uh, effect in the short run. As an economist, I'd like your opinion on this view. When I look at stuff like this, I always look at it from the standpoint of the the educated institutional investor, how they look at things differently than the American people. The American people buy a stock because their financial liar says it's a good stock or a good fund to be in, and they hold it and they wait. And they have they have two, they actually have three outcomes that can occur. 
the 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 fund can perform well over time and provide a positive investment. The fund can skid sideways and go nowhere and provide basically a loss to inflation, or it can actually depreciate in value and provide a direct loss. And those those are the only three outcomes they have. They they have no they have no way that they're hedging the other side. They're not they're they're not invested in a way that has multiple positive outcomes. So when I look at farmland, this is one of the reasons I see investors keenly keenly eyeing farmland. I think there's a debt crisis coming, interest rates going up and all, but there's a million things that could change that. So when we look forward, from everything you just said, we can have interest rates remain low. We know demand for food and inflation is going to create greater demand, so it drives up the price of the farmland, and then the institutional investor can reap the dividend for 10 years or 5 years, whatever, and then dump the land for a profit if that remains the same. People say, well, what happens if the interest rates go up? Well, if the interest rates go up, you still got to eat. Right now, the farmland yeah. is is cheaper in the cost because you got to sell it for lower due to the higher rate. But most people that farm can't afford to buy it now because they can't afford the interest rate to go along with it. So now you've basically got a land grab where the institutional investor has gobbled up all the land to turn the farmers into sharecroppers. So either way, they end up in the catbird seat. They can either remain a land baron. Or they can go into another investment, but either way, their underlying investment is protected. Sure, yeah. Uh, you know, one other thing to think about in, in that way, too, though, is that a lot of institutional investors, if interest rates do rise, they're actually, they will, even though the land will be relatively cheaper to purchase, um, uh, unless they specialize specifically in farmland and don't really have anything else to do, a lot of them will cut and run. And the reason for that is because of the rising interest rates, they're going to they're gonna view other investment vehicles as more profitable. So that, that's the other thing. They, uh, I, I think a lot... How do we counter that with, well, why are, in, why are rates rising? Are they rising as a normal market force, or are they rising because of the currency uh, crisis? If they're rising, well, that, right? If they're rising from normal market forces, and I can just go get 12% on my money in a, in a relatively safe investment, hell yeah, I'll cash out and go get that money. If they're rising due to countries having to elevate their prices to attract investment in the money, then I'm going to stick with land. So that's what I'm saying. Like, no matter what happens, it's, it's, just, it's a very safe place to be. Yeah. No, it, it absolutely is. So um, that's, that's one of the big things, too, is um, talking about, you know, really it, my, my biggest concern right now is, an increase in interest rates because of the risk of uh, inflation. So, you know, part, part, and what a lot of people need to remember is that your interest rates, your prevailing interest rate is a combination of two things. It's a combination of the loanable fund, the supply of loanable funds with the demand for loanable funds. There's that interaction. Just like any other supply and demand curve, that will set a price. However, because we're talking about loaning money, loaning, um, you know, loaning assets, then you also have a premium for risk. And that's going to, you know, that, that's where your interest rates really come in. And, and so the, um, the factoring in inflation, that's also part of that risk category. And so, yeah, if you have interest rates rising due to inflation risk, then, um, Really, you have a you have a problem with all investments. It's not going to be just with farmland. So it, you're right. It, it you know yeah you could invest in another asset, but uh, inflation is going to eat away the your your the value of that just as quickly in um, you know any commodity or uh, any stock just as quickly as farmland. So yeah, you're right about that. Whereas the farmland, if the inflation is affecting food prices, it drives up the relative value of the land from a productive standpoint. And that that's kind of my point, that like this this was an obvious play for big investors. And this is why I was able to say they were going to do it before they did it. Like you, when you looked at everything and go, well, they've screwed this up, they screwed that up, they screwed this up. Like where can you go from here and be relatively safe? My two plays were timber and farm. That if we could, the oh, yeah. place where the money would go, because either timber is a different me- mechanic, but if I have harvestable timber, but timber prices are low, I'd sit on the land for another year, at least the deer hunters, and, and, and let the, the, the crop actually get bigger and wait for prices to come in to match that. So it, it was like, to me, it was like the only place they had left to go. 
um, other than maybe gold and silver, because they had totally screwed the credit market. They had totally screwed the bond market. They, they've, they've basically blown everything up. The last thing they have to blow up is debt, and the only place to be safe when debt blows up is some kind of hard commodity. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, and, and some of the things I've written is, is uh, you know, kind of, uh, assuming that interest rates are stable, um, you know, we can expect um, these, you know, these investments, these institutional investors to um, to sort of stick around and, and, and not do too much. But, yeah, if, if we get runaway inflation and, and the, again, the interest rate goes up, um, you know, it's difficult to say exactly what they're going to do, but I think your logic on this is, is really dead on. And in fact, listening to you is one of the reasons I got I got into looking at this is because, um, you know, because I'm I, eventually whenever whenever I finish graduate school and graduate, um, could be a bit, feels like it's going to be a billion years from now. Um, I want to do the same thing. I want to buy a homestead, and and uh, so that that's one of the main reasons I've I've been curious about this. But I do think that your intuition on, um, you know, things like timberland, even ranch land, which. Um, there, there's not much to uh, to a lot of ranch land. I've kind of lumped that in here, although um, it, it's it is a little different. But sure. anything that can be any sort of productive land, you know, timberland, ranch land, um, cropland, vineyards, orchards, those kinds of things, they're, they're, you're going to have a similar effect on here. And um, yeah, they're a lot safer in a lot of ways than other things, uh, simply because you always have the opportunity to produce something. And it's also one of the places where we, we already know right now, today, the total inventory of land that exists on planet Earth, and without some kind of space technology, there ain't going to be no more. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, the, the supply... So, okay, and so in, in economic terms, we say that the supply of farmland is relatively inelastic. In other words, it, it doesn't respond to increases in price the same way that other things do. You know, if you run a factory and you're producing widgets, if the price goes up, hey, guess what, everybody? You just got mandatory overtime. We're running 24 hours a day. Push you know, a couple you hire make, more yeah, people. Push a couple buttons, make some more widgets. Call up the suppliers, get a better price on the transistors for the widgets. Build another factory, expand to Singapore, whatever. You, 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 there's yeah. no land-making machine. It doesn't exist. Exactly. So yeah, you know the the uh, um, w- one thing that in one of my studies I found was that um, as uh, as the return as the net present value of, of farmland increases, actually uh, marginally uh, marginally productive farmland starts to, to uh, be claimed or, or reclaimed or, or however you want to say it uh, to produce. So um, if you've got, let's say, a, a, a parcel of land that's just really good farmland, it's really productive, and um, you know, we'll, we'll, let's say it's it's down in a you know down in a valley a little ways, and and a lot of it, you know, it's just getting a lot of good runoff from the mountains. The mineral content's great, and it's producing, uh, we'll just say, corn. So you're getting a really really good yield of corn on this land. And uh, it's, it's just very productive. You're rotating it. You know, you're taking. You know, you're being responsible for this land. And then up the hill a little ways, you know, maybe you've got a parcel of land that, um, you know, you could grow stuff on it, but it's not very productive. And, um, you know, you could grow it, but it's it's kind of not really worth your time and effort. Well, if the price of your crops goes up and, and the price of your inputs remain relatively constant. Guess what? It just became profitable, and so um, they do. They do that. Um, the supply will increase, but it, it's not not in the short run. Um, that's typically, you know, if you're a farmer, that decision is made. You know, like, hey, you know, look, over the last five years, we've got, um, you know, such and such kind of return on this farmland, and so, you know, it would it would be profitable to uh, to go and clear that land and uh, start farming it. Um, but, but typically, you know, those aren't made like, hey, look, you know, there's a, well, a big one-year bump in, in crop prices, so let's start farming that land. That's not typically how it works. Yeah, and, I mean, what are your thoughts on, like, because my next question, and I, I want to kind of add something to it uh, now that you've said that, is 
when I look at stuff and I'm saying, like, this is a great investment, this is a great investment, and all the talking heads are like, that's stupid. I'm like, I feel really happy. And it might shock people, but when all of a sudden MSNBC, CNN, Fox News have people coming in telling people why I was right for that long, I'm always like, crap. It's, it, this, is, this is when you enter bubble stage. So do you yep. think that there can there is a bubble right now or that we're pending a bubble in this market? And I'd like to hear like maybe how you think something like biofuel ethanol plays into that because there is a fixed acreage of land inventory. There's there's just a complete fixed there's only so much dirt. But there's really not a fixed acreage of farmland because you like you just talked about land being reclaimed. Well, another way land is being created, so to speak, is there's a forest there. We'll cut it down, slash, and burn it and plant corn. So sure. is there a bubble, and is things like expanding the farmland inventory in very tragic ways in the rainforest region for ethanol, these subsidies, et cetera, playing into that? Oh, yeah. I know yeah, it's too so, um, sorry, but they really kind of go together, I think. Yeah, absolutely they do. Um, interesting. So if you look at um, – and, and maybe I'll, I'll try and find the link. Uh, the USDA publishes um, farmland, uh, a report on farmland values every year. Uh, and if you look at a map of the U.S., you're going to see the biggest increases in these farmland values in the Corn Belt. Okay? So these people, these people right in the, uh, in the Corn Belt, the Midwest, um, they've seen big increases year over year the last the last few years of uh, the value of land. In fact, even in Idaho, um, which interestingly, uh, this is just sort of a, a side note, but Idaho um, has the highest yield per acre on corn out of anywhere in the nation, uh, out of any of the states. Even the corn it beats out the Corn Belt. I don't know why, but it, it's just kind of something interesting to note. Um, but I, I'm looking at this. So when I did my study, um, we did kind of an empirical analysis. We looked at the Snake River Plain in Idaho. So anybody that's familiar with that, it's kind of south central Idaho. It's very desert, um, but it's uh, it's good land and it's irrigated, um, or at least all, all the land we looked at was irrigated. There's um, plenty of irrigation water available in most years. So. Um, our analysis started in 1987, went through 2008, and 2007 we had a 40% increase in um, in gross revenue per, per acre, and the value of that land increased um, right around like seven or eight percent, I believe, for that same time period. Um, 2008, from 2007 to 2008, there was a 20% increase in uh, in revenue. I mean, if you saw that anywhere, um, you would see the value of whatever was producing that increase because there would be a there would be a bigger demand for that um, in the Midwest, especially where um, some actually some some um, classmates of mine did a study on on how the ethanol uh, subsidies and things like that were affecting. Uh, farm, you know, farmland values in the Midwest, there is a big bubble there. And I, I personally believe that in parts of America there are asset bubbles. However, um, it is important to look and do a sort of site-by-site -site analysis if you, if you do plan on investing, investing in some farmland. Because not everywhere, just like the housing bubble, um, not everywhere has, has felt that. Um, you know, I, it was a good example. I went up to uh, Bozeman, Montana this last weekend. I'm looking at Montana State for Graduate School. And uh, I was totally shocked. They are building houses like crazy in Bozeman. And there are not a lot of houses for sale. And I, I'm wondering why that is. And, I, you know, I, I talked to a few people, and they said, oh, yeah, back in, uh, you know, 2004, 2005, 2006, uh, they weren't building very many houses here. They didn't get the bubble, and so they just had. They've had some stable growth, and, and it's been. It, there are places where farmland has been like that across the nation. So it's very important uh, that people look at individual areas. Um, 
If you see, you know, a lot of uh, Archer Daniel Midland signs in some area, you may, you may think twice about it because you may have an asset bubble there. But you can always go to the the USDA's website. Um, The Economic Research Service produces reports, and every state will have its own report. So that 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 should be a resource that that people can use. You know, I think there's a tremendous amount of like can of worms you open over there because there's so many things that, that like make farmland a totally like a great investment, but a totally different investment than something like gold or silver. If I buy .999 silver bullion, I don't care if it's in the shape of a ball or a bar or a coin. There's a little bit of it, but the reality is it, it is what it is. What it is. Farmland in Idaho where there's enough rainfall to farm with very little to no irrigation uh, is very different from farmland, let's say, in Iowa where I'm going to be dependent upon irrigation uh, with drought years and such. There's all this talk about the drought, the drought, the drought. I promise you where I was in Montana up near Flathead Lake um, this year in the spring, those people could give a crap up there with what they're growing about whether there was a drought this year or not. There's so much moisture in those hills and, you know, six foot deep black topsoil. That land's obviously going to cost more, but it's more resilient. Uh, but it has a shorter growing season and all of these things have to factor in. You can look into the south and go more prone to drought, but maybe I can pull three crops a year out of a field. And all of these things twist the dynamic where it's not really like these just like we have to like look at the the macro view and say productive land. And then we can define that further down to agricultural uses and timber uses, ranch uses, et cetera. But even with that, there's like this whole can of worms of these thousands of different variables that every piece of land is different. Uh, How close are you to suppliers? Uh, All these things factor in, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. And so that that's why again from, you know, from um I guess from a macro standpoint, yeah, you, you can look at these trends and you can say, well, yes, there's an asset bubble, no, there's not an asset bubble or or whatever. Um I I I tend to think that we're we are um we we have if you were to look at the macro view, if you were to just say uh, in the US is there is there a uh, a farmland asset bubble and and I could only answer yes or no, I would say yes. Um, but if you were to ask me if there was a farmland asset bubble in Idaho, I would say no. If you were to ask me is there a farmland asset bubble in, uh, you know, a place like maybe Texas, I would probably say no. Um, or, you know, you, you can look state by state. And so, yeah, that, that's what's important. When you, when you break it down, when you're trying to invest, um, you know, you really want to, um, to look at the, uh, the sort of the micro view of, any particular land. So if you're actually looking to invest in farmland for yourself, to purchase, to produce on, things like that, I think it is important to look at the uh, the micro level, you know, look at some state level data, go talk to your your USDA office and uh, find out what's going on. If you talk to an, econ- an economist with the uh, Economic Research Service in your local office, um, they can probably tell you what they think is going on and and uh, give you a give you a good opinion on it. There's probably, a um, there's probably a different view, too, by, by the buyer. Am I buying uh, a, a thousand acres to lease to a farmer, or am I buying 20 acres to build a homestead on? Those are totally different questions because, frankly, as long as I can afford my 20 acres and it produces for me, I don't really give a flying flip what the underlying asset value is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So... Yeah, you know, it's 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 kind of interesting because um you know, from an investment standpoint, there there are different ways to invest as well. Um, and you know, it, it it's uh it's one of those things that you don't you don't have to be a farmer to invest in farmland. And I think that you kind of hit the nail on the head there. Um, you know, a lot of people who listen to this show, myself included, um, you know, I I wouldn't ever be looking to buy 100 acres. I don't know what I would do with that much land. I mean, unless it was forested and I could just, you know, leave it and, and uh, you know, lease it out to uh, hunters or something like that, you know, just leave it uh, as raw, you know, timberland or whatever. I don't know what I would do with 100 acres. Yeah, um, I'm with you. I, I mean, thought- I look at 100 acres and I go, if I have the blue sky money to do it, 
The 100 acres represents 80 acres of forested land surrounding the 20 I'm doing something on, just so everybody yeah. else leave me the hell alone because they can't see what I'm doing. <laughs> and nobody will bitch about my shed or whatever because I'm surrounded by – and it would just be – it would be – I mean, think about it. It would be a beautiful way to live. Uh, a 20-acre you know, homestead with some managed forest and fields and everything and then surrounded by 80 acres of you know, truly native forest. What a – you know – it's quiet. It's it's climate controlled. There's nobody to bother you. But yeah, I'm with you. I can't see owning an eight, a hundred acre field. And if I did, the first thing I try to do is replant eighty of it in the forest. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so so your your smaller homesteads and and, and actually, um, if if you look at the trend, um, the the number of farms across the U.S. has increased. And the size of those farms has decreased. So there are a lot more, um, you know, small farmers nowadays than there were before. You know, even my brother, he lives about, um, you know, 10 or 15 minutes away from where I do. He has a, a, a five-acre piece of land, and, um, you know, they have, they have what, what city folk would say a, a huge, huge garden. Um, for out where he lives, it's a, it's a pretty small garden. You know, some people have you know, several acres of productive land he's got, you know, maybe a, a tenth of an acre um, as his garden. It's good size. But he runs, um, he's got some goats, he's got some, uh, I think, two or three cows. Um, you know, he, this year he's doing cows. Last year he did uh, a couple pigs. Um, so he's that sort of gentleman farmer. You know, he's running a homestead. And um, I think that's where a lot of people are, are really looking um, but technically, he's out in farmland area, and so um, he does have his home on that property, but if he wanted, um, you know, he could be producing, you know, rows of corn and uh, things like that. My, in, in fact, my father-in-law, too, um, last year, he had uh, leased about 15 acres of land and uh, irrigated it and put some wheat on it and and uh, harvested that. So, you know, a small 15-acre farm uh, it's it's pretty rare anymore that you see you know hundred acre farms and, and things like that. A lot more people are are they have a day job they have uh, you know they work in a especially like around here where you, where you have like a metropolitan area that people can go and work and uh, do things and then they come home at night and they they farm you know fifteen twenty acres of land and they got their tractor and and uh, and do their thing so. That's that's been a big big trend, and I would see that continuing to uh, to move that way. Well, and that's good because it's kind of in a way the reestablishment of the family farm, the small farm. And I think that one of our big problems in America today is that that farming has become centralized. Where up until um, the Great Depression, farming was a decentralized activity. That there were thousands and thousands and thousands of small farmers. And I don't think people realize that the model you're describing is not that much different than the original farmer. Yeah, there was the guy with 40 acres and some pigs that lived out in the middle of nowhere on a dirt road and had his little Model T truck, and you know that was the only thing he did. But it, even up until that period of time, there were a lot of people that had a job in town, and they ran a 10 or 20-acre farm, and they produced for themselves, and they produced for market, and they had multiple sources of income. So... It's not even like this is a new idea, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, and if you think about it, too, I mean, if you just look at what the economy in, in total is doing to, um, you know, doing to people, to doing to their incomes, um, you know, a, a lot of them are saying, hey, you know what, uh, I don't really feel like being right in the middle of the city anymore. I'd like to live on the outskirts. I can, you know, the land is a little bit cheaper. I can go buy, you know, a, a an acre even of land, uh, you know, up to maybe five acres, ten acres, whatever, whatever suits you, and uh, we can produce a lot of what we consume on that land. Imagine that self-sufficiency is becoming a very popular topic, even among people who aren't don't would never consider themselves a prepper. You know, that that's one thing about it. Um, again, my, my brother, he would he would never consider you would never call him a prepper. Um, but he's one of the most prepared people I know just because of his lifestyle. So a lot of people are moving that way um, just because of the way the economy is. And, and so that, that's an important trend um, to pick up on as well. 
Yeah, and would you say that's like the main way that like the people that don't want to be farmers can invest in, in farmland, or are there other ways that like the average Joe that says, "Look, I get that this is a good investment. I've got money put away. I want to do something with it. I don't trust sitting in the Dow Jones Industrial Average anymore. I don't trust just sitting on currency, and I don't want to just throw all my money in gold and silver." Are there ways other than just the homestead approach that they can approach this? Yeah, you bet. So. Um Couple things that that I I, I think are important. So, um, one, one of them is going to be the gentleman farmer. So, um, there, there's several different ways. You know, like I said, you can invest. And, and if you want to, you know, work your job in the city and uh, you know live half an hour outside of town or an hour outside of town, depending on how big your city is, and um, you know farm, you know five, you know anywhere from five to uh, twenty acres. I, I would say you can still be a maybe a gentleman farmer on 20 acres, um, you know, by all means, that's a great way to invest. You, you, you got to have a place to live anyway. So if you're within commuting distance from your city job and uh, you would probably need some, you know, commitment from your family, um, I know my, my brother's wife does quite a bit of the, you know, tractoring and things like that. Um, but, but, you know, uh, that's a great way to invest. you got to have a place to live anyway. So if you can live um, outside of the city for relatively the same price that you can live inside the city and you can be more self-sufficient and invest that way, uh, that's, that's fantastic. Um, I think, again, most of the people that listen to your show probably would realize that that's a much better way to go. Um, but there are other ways. Um, so one thing that I know um, might make some people cringe, but there, there's uh, really there, there are some really good, really reliable ETFs um, that either include or have as their main holdings investments in farmland. And so, you know, for somebody who is m- maybe married to the big city, um, or or you know has a job, or you live in a place like LA or New York where you're not going to find farmland within you know an hour within commuting distance anyway. Um, you, you can you can invest in farmland, and a lot of these uh, a lot of these ETFs, you know, they're not set it and forget it type investments. Um, I don't think that anybody would say, you know, ETFs are typically you know set it and forget it investments. But um, we we saw what Bernie Madoff did with that. But um, you know, for for a lot of people who want to invest, just to, you know, throw a little bit of money into uh, some farmland holdings. You can do that, and I would go in, I would look at what they hold, what kind of farmland it is, uh, where it is, you know, if it's, if it's productive or not, and, and uh, really, really do some investigation before I, I would tell anybody to invest in any ETF. Um, I looked at a, a couple different companies before, um, and you can invest basically through these companies, and they're, they're not really a fund. Um, but there, there are a few companies who specialize in this as well, and um, one of them in particular, and I, I won't even mention the name because I, I, I do not endorse them, but they, they specialize in um, productive land investments, and I talked to their chief economist, and, and he actually uh, really helped me out with my paper when I was doing it, and... Um, helps me, uh, you know, figure out what to look at when, when I'm analyzing farmland. And uh, they, they seem like they did, a, you know, uh, some good investing, uh, very diversified. They had uh, everything from orchards and vineyards and, um, you know, they had some land in the Corn Belt and they had some land down in California, Idaho, Texas, East Coast, um, some down in the South, you know, just all across the U.S. So um, you would want to look for something diversified, some, I know you don't uh, give away ticker symbols and anything, and I completely understand. When I, whenever I do, I'm always like, "This is an example." I'm not saying, you know, this is the type of thing. But is there a place where people maybe can easily find a large listing of these types of ETFs where they can, you know, get more information and start the research? Um, to be honest, I, I don't really know. Um, <laughs> I, I know they exist uh, I, because I, I, I've run across a few um, in my again in my research. Um, the, the main the main one that and I, and I guess I'll just tell you that the people I talked to was the uh, the Hancock Agricultural Group um, or the Hancock Agricultural Investment Group, and uh, that that's a company they specifically invest. And I and I think that 
um, their company or their company's holdings are included in some ETFs. I don't know if you can directly purchase through them, um, but I, I know that there are several ETFs. And, and again, I'm not an expert on ETFs um, by any means. So, uh, but but they uh, they definitely they definitely exist. So and I, I'll say something to you. You may know better than I do. Yeah, I, I, what I'm going to do, actually, I don't have off the cuff a, a page with like a big listing of ag funds or anything like that. I'll see what I can find before the show airs and see if I can put that in the show notes. But I would say that like you really want to look at the makeup of the fund because not all are the same. So there are you know funds that are in the agricultural business that divide things up, and you, you look at their allocation. It's like cattle, cocoa, coffee, corn, cotton. And they're holding the, the, the commodity itself or futures on the commodity itself. And then there's other ones that are basically they're playing the ag thing by buying ag companies. And, and you might look in there and see like, gee, uh, I'm looking at one now and I'm certain I'll give this one because I'm certainly not recommending it. And you'll hear why in a second. But it's MOO, M-O-O, is the ticker symbol it trades under. Market Vectors Agribusiness, Top 10 Holdings, number one. Monsanto Corporation, 8.2. <laughs> So now, I'm not going to tell anybody not to invest in Monsanto. They've actually traditionally been a very good investment. But, you know, from an ethics standpoint, Monsanto's not getting my money. I'm not investing in Monsanto. So from a personal standpoint, researching the fund may, from an ethics standpoint for some people, be beyond just what's in the underlying investment. But do you want to be contributing to them? Do you want to be, you know, Michael Moore talking shit about Exxon and then holding a hundred thousand dollars in Exxon stock? That type of thing, right? So <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm just saying, like, so I'll see what I can find. But I'm with you. I don't like to give people ticker symbols because then the guy's like, I just bought a hundred thousand dollars worth of, you know, X Y Z, and I'm like, oh, I did not say to do that, <laughs> you know. But I, I think that it is like your advice is very well founded, and just don't go find a ETF for Timberland and buy it. Like, find out what the hell yeah. the holdings are. Um, and I say yeah. that on mutual funds, whatever, what's the underlying holding? Sure. Well, and, and you know, it, just like I know you've said so many times on your show that, you know, people should not be investing, a, you know, a huge percentage of their wealth in, like, gold and silver, for instance. So why would why would you say that somebody should in, invest a huge percentage of their wealth into uh, you know, farmland or something like that. It's, it's, again, it's a commodity. Um, if you're looking at this as a, you know, if you, if you need a homestead, then, then say, okay, you have to have a place to live, so you're going to spend a certain amount on um, having a place to live anyway. And, and, you know, investing in a homestead is different, uh, I, I would say, for so many reasons. But if you're just looking to throw some investments in the portfolio that include agricultural land, um, and that's going to be, you know, in an ETF or something like that uh, or through, a, you know, a specialized company, um, again, it, it would be important to tell people, and I know you can't stress this enough, especially when you have so many listeners, because somebody's going to, you know, botch this and then, and then write some hate mail to either you or me and, uh, you know, talk about how we told them to go out and, and sell all their stock and, and invest it on farmland. That's not what we're saying. Um, you definitely want to do your research, find an ETF that includes, um, you know, a diversified set of holdings that you would, um, that you can, you know, support and get behind, and then invest, you know, a certain amount of your money, whatever you feel comfortable. But I definitely wouldn't say that that amount should be, uh, you know, a, a super sizable amount. You know, I, I do a little bit of silver investing. Um, I don't really have the money to do gold investing, but... You know, I, I make I don't I don't put all of my chips into silver. So, I mean, that's you know I I love silver. Silver is one of my favorite things. But, but you know, like I said, I don't put all my money behind that. Um, same would be with uh, with agricultural land. So. Yeah, I mean, it's like when I talk to my financial liar, you know, he's always like, well, we need more diversification in this because, you know, we don't have any technology or whatever. I'm like, And I'm always like, Jake, dude, we have no diversification in the portfolio that you manage. And he's like, what? Well, it's like, this is all paper assets. 
Right. So yeah. we're, I'm looking for the best investments that you can find me in, in paper assets. I'm not really looking for you to diversify this bucket of my money in your lingo because I don't consider it diversified anyway because it's paper asset. It's all securities. So therefore, since right. one is in telecom and the other one is in manufacturing, I don't really consider that to be a great deal of diversification because in the end, I'm still tired tied to this paper reality. So that's why I say, okay, then some of your money goes in silver and gold and physical silver and gold, and some of it maybe goes into land, some of it goes into tools, some of it goes into preps, so that it's actually diversified. Because if you're in a well-diversified portfolio – but everything is betting on a rise in certain markets and it's all paper. You're not really diversified. You're a little bit, exactly. but it's not the way they talk about it. Exactly. Well, and, and you know, that's, that's one of the big things. Um, it, it's funny because I, I'm, not, I'm not majoring in finance, but I do get a lot of people asking me, especially with all the economic uncertainty that's going on, you know, well, what, what should I do with my money and how should I invest it? And, and I can't... I, I'm not a prophet, and I'm not a, uh, you know, I, I'm not a, uh, a fortune teller. So I, I can't always tell people. But, you know, the biggest thing, um, of course, we've gone now from farmland value to, to investments. But, I mean, the biggest thing for people to remember is that diversify and invest in things that, um, you know, a, a, that common sense would tell you we're going to need in the future. So... You know, that, that, that's just what I tell everybody. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and kind of coming back on tra track as we uh, as we wrap up here, you're just your overall view after all of this research and effort, what do you see as the future for farmland? So I, I think that, um, again, you have to be careful um, where in the U.S. you're talking about. I think that if you look at an area, if you take an area that hasn't been um, too affected uh, by a lot of this ethanol legislation and things like that, take an area that has had stable growth but not excessive, then your, your outlook um, going forward is very positive. I don't think that this is going to be quick money, but I think that if somebody wants to invest in farmland, if they're looking at purchasing a homestead or some productive land, um, it's, it's uh, positive. I think that, um, you know, something outside of a, you know, just outside like we talked about within commuting distance of a metropolitan area, I think a lot of those have more upside potential um, just because you, you in a lot of these areas you're going to have urban sprawl and, and that will help um, – That'll help hedge against uh, a devaluation of your land, um, but overall, yeah, I, I'm very, I'm very bullish on farmland, not excessively, uh, very, very, uh, very conservatively bullish on farmland. So that that's kind of what I see. So I mean, maybe we could put it this way: back in in the in the fifties or sixties, when people first started, you know, the average guy started making stock part of his retirement. The, the 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 guy back then that was a legitimate financial advisor would say things like invest in companies like AT and T. They're not going to run away with profit every day. They're not going to run way up the index or anything, but they're going to give you a substantial positive dividend, and they're a good holding for the long haul. And now caveat: this is 2012, 1960. So Jack didn't just tell you to go buy AT and T, but that's kind right. of how maybe you're viewing farmland today as that as that blue chip dividend-producing stock that our grandparents may be invested in in the 60s and 70s, we now have that opportunity with farmland today. We have to be selective and not just take every single thing that comes into that basket, but that's kind of a steady growth, dependable production. Exactly. Exactly. Very cool. So, hey, um, you want to tell people you've got a website, right? Laymanoff.com. Yes. Correct. Can you tell people what that's about? So, and, um, yeah, so so the website, um, it's uh, it's my blog, and, and it gets updated whenever I have time. I work full-time, and I go to school full-time, so it's uh, it doesn't end up being all that often. Um, it's, it's typically driven by questions that I get from people I know, um, and uh, my, my email is posted on there, so if you, if you do have, uh, if anybody has uh, questions about, 
you know, the economy, general trends. I'd love to answer those. And uh, it's at laymanomics.com, which is L-A-Y-M-A-N-O-M-I-C-S.com. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, I try to basically put economic concepts in layman's terms, things that everybody can understand. Very, very cool. And I'll make sure there's a link to that. Uh, and like your Facebook and other things like that uh, in today's show notes. And uh, hey, Aaron, great interview, great research, uh, great knowledge of the subject. Thanks for uh, being on the show and sharing it with us. Hey, thanks. It's been a pleasure to be here with you. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico today, along with Aaron Bikin, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TV. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living for today.